Good morning, everyone. Great to be with you. Um, we are uh, continuing in our series through the Gospel of John. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to John 17, verse 9. And we will pick up there in a moment. We are nearing the ending of chapters 13 through 17, which makes up Jesus' final discourse or his teaching or parting instructions to his disciples. And in fact, as we enter 17, Jesus has finished his official parting words, and now he's praying a final prayer over his disciples, uh, which we're unpacking these over the next couple weeks. Last week, Matt kind of teed it up, just giving us an idea of the theme and kind of what we can expect moving forward. Um, and we will pick up there today uh, in chapter 17, verse 9. This is Jesus praying over his disciples. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them, and I kept them safe by that name that you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who would believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. I in them, and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me, and have loved them even as you have loved me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are thankful to you this morning that we can gather as your disciples who you were praying over here, over here um, in this passage of Scripture that we um, would even be considered to be united to you and the Father as you and the Father are united to one another. And that same unity, that same unity of love uh, that you um, promise that to us, that permeates us, and we are then united in a way with one another, uh, in a way that uh, this divisive world does not recognize. Um, so we thank you. We thank you for your love that fills us, your Holy Spirit that guides us and leads us. Uh, truly, Lord, um, it is your truth, your word uh, that sets us apart, that sanctifies us, um, that um, makes us unique for your kingdom purposes. We thank you and we love you. Amen. As we're reading through this final prayer, uh, Jesus prays for his disciples. There's one phrase that kept jumping off the page. It was when he said, may they be one as we are one. Jesus prays that all of his disciples would be one and unified in the same way that he and the Father were one and unified. And this is so because of what he tells us, that the world would know that Jesus has come, that the world would know that Jesus is Lord. 
In other words, Jesus prays for a radical unity among his followers to show the world that there is a new kingdom, that Jesus is back from the dead. This would be evidence, this would be proof. The way that we are united and the way that we are one, just as he and the Father were one. So what we want to do this morning and in the next uh, two weeks ahead after this week is to explore some different aspects of this unity um, and in contrast the division within the church uh, and then what it looks like to embody this prayer that Jesus is praying over his disciples. Is it possible to have racial unity in the church? Is it possible to have political unity within the church? Is it possible to have as we are going to discuss this morning, socioeconomic unity within the church? And if so, what does it look like? What does it look like to have unity among different classes, people from different cultures, and socioeconomic groups within the church? Is that possible? Is that possible for us to pursue? And what is holding us back from pursuing that or from realizing that fully? Those are the questions that we'll be asking this morning uh, through an interview, uh, through the lens of an interview with Matt Lewis. So Matt, I'll have you go ahead and come on up and we'll get started. So uh, just a little bit here. So Matt is Matt and Lauren lead uh, the Grafted Movement, the Grafted Church that meets here on uh, Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. Um, so we'll get into a little bit more of those details um, as we get into the first question. So Matt, I'll have you take a seat and I'll... Give this over to you here. Put it a little bit lower. Maybe not quite so low. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, the first question, Gabe, I'll have you put the first question up on the screen, is uh, just a little bit about your backstory, Matt. So uh, more specifically, how did you become interested in socioeconomic unity in the body of Christ? Yeah, well, thanks, Evan. Uh, like you were saying, I'm Matt. And um, I think it really starts for me with Paul's words in 1 Corinthians. So in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, again in chapter 3, uh, Paul, and you might a lot of you be familiar with it, is encouraging the believers that he's talking to, like, don't get attracted to particular gifted, charismatic individuals and be following them. But the way he states it is, what's going on? Some of you are like, I follow this guy. Some of you are like, I follow this guy or this person or this way of teaching. Aren't we all united in Christ? And connecting that to Jesus's prayer in John chapter 17, uh, the way maybe a lot of good things start in many of our lives, uh, for me, it, it didn't start good. It actually started as a middle schooler looking out and going, this is stupid. Like, what is going on? Why are these people claiming to follow Jesus saying, I'm a Baptist, I'm a this, I'm a this, I'm a that. Why are there these identifying statements, I am, connected to something other than Jesus and the gospel? I, I just thought it was dumb. And so from that place of judgment, but also starting to work that out in my own mind. And this will get you guys into my story here in just a moment. Um, but as a middle schooler and as a kid that was really attracted to violence, and battle, and war, uh, I understood pretty quickly that a great war technique is divide and conquer. And then I just looked around at the people I knew who claimed to follow Jesus and the church and a lot of my family members, and I was like, well, Satan's having a heyday with this one. And so that, uh, that propelled me as somebody who likes to think philosophically, loves philosophy, on a journey of discovery. And I'll, I'll get into that here in a minute. But I want to backtrack a little bit of my own story, because uh, I think it provides some good groundwork for why I personally became so passionate about this. Uh, and, it, and it starts with this. I, I grew up in suburban America. I grew up in a, a nice middle-class neighborhood attached to an elementary school, cul-de-sac next to me. Um, but inside of the house that I grew up in, in suburban America, uh, I grew up with a sister that had a developmental disability and had a particular 
cognitive disorder that doctors didn't understand for quite a long period of time. And I also grew up in a household and in a family where multiple family members had mental illness. And so I grew up in this world of one, a lot of chaos, but also of watching my family members and the people that I was most closely associated with try to figure out how to fit in and be normal. And that was so much of the effort and the posturing and the energy of life that they were putting in and putting forth. And that really, for me, uh, brought up a lot of curious thoughts as to what, what's going on here. Well, then I myself uh, got into school and very quickly, uh, because I was pretty outspoken, because I was a six-year-old that thought philosophically, uh, because I thought that I was uh, something special and was always working to myself, be better than those around me. Uh, not surprisingly, I was pretty socially outcasted um, in a variety of ways, but to kind of paint a picture for you, um, when I was in elementary school, uh, I would leave early sometimes. I had a doctor's appointment or an appointment I'd have to make. And I can vividly remember almost all the other boys in the class standing up and clapping because I was leaving. Or they would boo if I came in late because they were so disappointed that I was there. And so through a lot of those experiences, I quickly lived a life where I pretty much always felt like I was on the outside. Uh, that no matter what I did, I was pretty constantly rejected. I couldn't make friends. I couldn't figure out how to fit in and how to belong. Um, I refused to give up some of who I was, um, my authenticity. But at the same time, I was also working to try to be really cool. And uh, that didn't mesh real well. <laughs> didn't help me socially fit in. And so I grew up watching my, my family in many ways, work and fight to try to fit in and not be able to. And I went on my own experience of trying to fit in, and uh, it never really worked. And so I came into middle school and high school with just a lot of heartache um, that I was trying to sort through. And, uh, and I also, through that, I gained a best friend as a kid, and he lived in a trailer park that was on the other side of our neighborhood. And as I spent more time with him and more time with his family and more time with the people that they were associated with, I started to get a completely different flavor of life and picture of how people lived than the one I had in my home. And so as I was trying to sort all this stuff out in my head, which uh, I've always been pretty prone to do, um, I was grappling with Jesus. You know, um, I was taught about Jesus. I was introduced to Jesus when I was four and a half. But my picture of Jesus as a young kid was he was this model of how we were supposed to live. He was this impossible standard of humanity. It was all about moral perfection. But I, I sensed that there was something deeper, that there was something underneath that. And I was always disturbed uh, from a very young age. And something was always just kind of moving around inside of me, longing for something more. There was something alluring and majestic and captivating about Jesus. And I knew it was about more than just showing up and being a good person like Jesus was. And so as I continued to wrestle with that, I, I came to this place, like I was saying in middle school, where I really started looking out on society and looking on the church. And um, I think this is common for people that experience a lot of rejection. I think a lot of times the prophetic voices, if you will, uh, in society and the prophetic voices within any culture are the people that have been pushed to the margins and pushed to the outside because then all of a sudden they gain an objective view on what's going on because they're forced to look on the inside at what's going on because they've been pushed to the outside. And so uh, I started doing that a lot. and that continue to stir within me this, man, there's, there's just something a lot more going on with Jesus and what he was about and what I'm discovering slowly he wants for his church. And, um, and, and it's not this. What, what is that? And so with my love for philosophy and asking more and more of these questions and wrestling with my own pain, 
um, God started to delve within me this deep compassion and empathy for other people who were going through the things that I was going through. Even though their lives may not on the outside look like mine, I was very easily and quickly able in any social environment to connect with somebody who was on the outside, who was lonely, who didn't feel like they could belong. Or I'd get into situations and there'd be someone incredibly obnoxious and annoying that everybody else wanted nothing to do with, and I would just gravitate towards that person and try to build a relationship with them. I knew what it felt like to be that person. And uh, all, all this led me uh, as an adult to this moment that I never could have anticipated, which is oftentimes how God works, where I was working at Starbucks, and I had all this, but I wasn't really thinking about all that at the time. I'd become an, a, an adult, and I was working at Starbucks, and to become a shift supervisor at my Starbucks, we needed to gather up some of our other coworkers and do some sort of charity for Christmas. So I didn't care at all at the time about doing a charity for Christmas. I just wanted to get promoted and make more money. So I, uh, I gathered together some of the people from my store, and there was a guy that would come in every single Thursday afternoon. And he came in seven days a week. And six days a week, he'd order the same thing. Quad shot, vente americana with room. Quad shot, vente americana with room. But then on Thursday afternoons, he ordered two huge carafes of hot chocolates. So I asked this guy one day, I go, hey, John, what's up with the hot chocolates on Thursday? Like, I don't think you're going home and chugging these. Like, what's, what's happening with this? And he said, well, I go and I do this thing called the Thursday night sack dinner every Thursday. I said, oh. I said, what's that? Can you tell me more? And he told me about it. And I said, John, that's awesome. I know you. You know me. We've got a little bit of a relationship. Can I bring some other people and you can help me get promoted? Well, I didn't actually tell him that, but that's what I was thinking. And so he, uh, he, not knowing my real motive, took me down to the Thursday sack dinner with my other coworkers. And I entered into this environment, and I don't know if some of you have this experience, but I entered this environment, and as soon as I walked in, I was like, these are my people. You just felt it in my, in my heart and in my soul, and there was just something like, okay, here I am, and here in so many ways, the sack dinner at the time uh, was open forum dinner for anybody coming off the street. So there's people coming in, saying all kinds of crazy things, singing to themselves, swearing up a storm, wanting to get in fights. And I just walked in, but I just saw this something that I had been looking for, actually. And what it was, was realness. There's these people, and, and maybe there's a lot of like brokenness, and maybe there's a lot of what we might consider to be off-putting. But what's off-putting to me is fake. That's the most off-putting thing to me. And so I was like, okay, here's people, and at least they're not gaming. They don't like you. They tell you you don't like you. I like that. Thank you. And so through that experience, I also started to see this beautiful picture of faith. I grew up, and I never worried for one instant. I worried about a lot of things, but I never worried for one instant about having a meal put in front of me or having shelter. That was never something I had to think about. And there's always this disconnect for me as far as dependence on Jesus, what this utter dependence and faith looks like. And I started to see, hey, you know what? There's something that a lot of these people around me that I'm starting to interact with get about faith that I want that I don't have. And so as I watched people really need and live into that, I was attracted to that. Like, I want that with Jesus. What you have, I want that. That realness that you have, just being where you're at, I want that. And I also had something to offer. The ability to be comfortable in some of those environments and to sit with people and be curious about what's going on and not judge what's going on on the surface. And as all this started to continue to move inside of me, um, it catapulted me on my journey that God wanted me on to go to college. So from going to the Thursday night sack dinner and then volunteering at CityGate and then building relationships with more and more people on the streets, um, I decided, hey, you know what? I, uh, I feel confident now to pursue, I think, the calling that God's put on my life. 
Uh, when I was 17, God called me pretty clearly. That's another story I won't tell this morning, but called me pretty clearly to be a pastor. No idea what that looked like. No idea what that meant at the time. Um, but through these experiences, I said, hey, you know what? I, I'm, I'm ready to go and do that. So I went to Multnomah. I went to Portland. I would live there for five and a half years. Got my degree in pastoral ministry and biblical theology. Uh, but my sophomore year there, I just had this vivid picture, uh, this vision of people praying for the work of the Holy Spirit um, in the morning in an upper room and God doing something in the city that people couldn't take credit for. And I had become so disenfranchised with all of these Christian leaders writing these systematic books on how it is that you go about seeing the Holy Spirit work and make this or that happen. And I just said, at the end of the day, what's really sad to me about that is we then credit the person. Look at this person. Look at their great idea. Look what they were able to accomplish. Look at the great plan that they put together. Instead of going, hey, look what God did that we never could have done on our own. And so that just became captivating to my heart. I want to be a part of something that God gets the credit for because we never could have figured out or been smart enough to do on our own so that then people through the process would be encouraged to trust God in that same way as I was learning to do so. And so with this vision in my heart and in my mind, I finished my time in college and I came back to Spokane and for a couple years, I worked as a personal trainer and went through a lot of hardships and difficulties in life. And, uh, and, and I still had this inside of me, but I didn't know what I was going to do with it. And I came to a, a pretty crescendo moment in my life where I needed a job. Uh, I'd just recently been divorced. i uh, been married before. My first wife left me. Just gone through that process. Uh, just lost my job, my car just broken down, have my dog. Literally just tell people, I am, I am a country song right now. I'm homeless, I've lost my car, I've lost my job unexpectedly, I've lost my wife, I have my dog. <laughs> a walking country song. Um, for those of you that like country music, I'm sorry, I hate country music. So uh, I'm sure there's a lot more to it than that. Um, but in that place... I got an opportunity through a friend that I had to step directly into a very high paying job as a manager for a trucking company. Uh, and with a pastoral ministry degree, there aren't a lot of high paying jobs that just pop into your lap, even when you're searching for them. Uh, but it was a very high paying job and, uh, and it would have been fairly comfortable. And at the same time, I also, because I had been searching high and wide for a job because uh, I had unexpectedly been let go from my job, I uh, also got offered a job at the House of Charity, paying like thirteen fifty an hour. And, um, and I prayed and I talked to some people in my life who knew me fairly well at the time, but I was just drawn and compelled by what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? Like what is really inside of my soul? And, uh, and it was clear as daylight. Like I, I want to go here. I think it's going to be harder, not going to be as comfortable, but, but this is where my heart is drawn. That's where I'm going to go. And so I went to the House of Charity, and I worked there for a little over a year, and it was amazing. Loved it there. Absolutely loved it. And it was hard. Um, and after I'd been there for a little over a year, um, House of Charity needed to make some budget cuts, and um, they offered me to keep my position, but after lots of conversation, I would have needed to work at the time every single week at the time my church community met. And I had told my, my job, I had told my boss, like, hey, self-care for me is not chocolate and jacuzzis. Self-care for me is getting to be around other people who remind me of the story that I'm a part of, and I need that to do this very difficult job. That's my lifeline. That's what gives me the empowerment to show up and do this job with compassion the way that I want to and think that I need to. The boss said, that's fine. We won't, make you, we won't make you work during that time every week. Well, two more meetings, and my boss said, actually, those are the hours. Take her to leave it. So I said, here's my three and a half weeks notice. Went on another journey of a couple months trying to find a job. Applied, applied, applied. Uh, never been fired. Have a college degree. Sure, it's a pastoral ministry degree. But after two and a half months, I, I could not find a job, but finally got offered a job at the Union Gospel Mission. And I thought about that. I was like, okay, I'm going to be making even less money here than I was making at the House of Charity. <laughs> but okay, God, 
this is uh, this is what you're presenting me. I think this is the way for me to continue being about your kingdom and not my own. So here we go. Got in my job at the Union Gospel Mission and um, loved it even more. Uh, grew tremendously as a person. Uh, got to see what it looks like to cultivate a culture of empowerment. Learned what it is to walk alongside other people wherever they're coming from in doing the work of the kingdom and of ministry. When I first started my job at the Union Gospel Mission as the data supervisor and the head of security, overseeing both the safety for the whole facility um, and putting together schedules and supervising guys, many of whom are coming out of a life recovery program or who are in currently a life recovery program, uh, I started doing that job, just me, the one-man Matt show here, watch as I go and put out all these fires and I counsel all these people and I just have people come into my office, you know, open door policy 24-7 while I'm there and it started being exhausting, but I also started seeing like, I, I don't think that this is representative of Jesus. And so I shifted and I started pouring most of my time and my energy discipling the other people who I was on a team with and empowering them to do the ministry, empowering them to counsel and care for other people, even knowing that sometimes they weren't going to do it as well as I was going to do it as they were in process and they were on their journey and letting go of that control and making a shift in leadership from being a leader who focuses on their own power to being a leader who focuses on giving their power away to empower other people. And that kind of brings me full circle to grafted I saw a continuous picture within both Christian and non-Christian organizations where there's just this inherent danger of control that goes along with any form of leadership. You can't get away from it. You have to control and manage and lead and organize and do things to be responsible as a leader, but it becomes so easy to become blind or unaware of all the ways that you then inadvertently start controlling and harming other people. You just, you, you can't escape that reality. And as I saw myself struggling with that and falling into that, I, I just started looking at Jesus more and more and seeing that so much of Jesus's uniting, loving presence and what he does is in his leadership is he never took on human power. And he gives his power away to his disciples, as we just read about, to his followers. He lets other people that sometimes do a piss poor job of representing him be his representatives. And I saw that so often our, our struggles, and this is going to get us into the socioeconomic unity that I'm passionate about in particular, but our struggles are we just we want something to be done so well that we forget that sometimes. There's a whole pile of broken lives behind us that we've run over in small and big ways to make sure something gets done well. Because we're more focused on it getting done well than on humbly loving and being about what Jesus is about. Any parent knows this, right? <laughs> There's things that you, you want to get done well, you want to see them well. And the picture, right, is like you tell the kid, like, I love you, I'm empowering you, I want to equip you, go fold the towels. They fold the towels, the kid goes to bed, takes a nap, you go and refold the towels the right way, they come, they look in the closet, what's the messaging? I'm not good enough. And so, just with, like, with that awareness, I said, you know, I want to I be part of creating and cultivating an environment for people of all walks of life to come and experience the belonging that Jesus has died for, that he has continued to invite me and my story into. And as I started wrestling with it, I said, you know, my passion isn't as much personally just about working at the Union Gospel Mission because my passion isn't actually most deeply about homelessness, although I do care about that very deeply and the effects it has on people. It's about Jesus's unity that we just talked about here in John chapter 17, what Jesus died for, which is that the experience, not just the words and the passion, but the experience of people would actually be that the ground at the foot of the cross is level, that we are equal. That Dorcas, the previously demon-possessed gal, the Roman centurion, the Philippian jailer, and Paul himself could all come into a room 
and their worth and their value and their family connection in Jesus is equal. And you can't be a part of that happening in idea. It has to be embodied. Jesus is the manifestation of God, of his word. Because Jesus knew that we didn't just need God's word, we needed a manifested, physically embodied picture of what God is like. And that the church, which is called to be the body of Christ, isn't called to be a group of people that get together in a room and sing and learn about Jesus as much as it's called to be the embodied presence of Christ. So what should the church then, I asked, look like, feel like, be like? Well, it should look like as much as possible, be like and feel like Jesus. Who would Jesus be spending time with? Well, it's probably who the church should be spending time with. What would Jesus be about? What would Jesus be cultivating? What kind of environment would be most important to Jesus? What kind of order or structure would Jesus have? What kind of freedom would Jesus allow? Well, that's what the church should be aspiring to. And to do that, we all have to be aware that we come in with lenses. And we'll talk a little bit about that um, as we go through these next couple questions. But as I thought about that, I said, you know, I want to be a part of a relationally centered community because I think the highest embodiment of this for me is to be in authentic, real relationships with people where we can experience this together. And I want people who, like myself and like a lot of the people that I've poured my life into, really struggle to feel like they can belong relationally, to have an environment where they can come and experience fully belonging relationally. And so that's really spurred the, the heart for Grafted. And so having some of the skills, the gifts, the passions that I have, I started coordinating and talking with other people in my life, my wife, the elder of the church I was a part of at the time, whose community that I was a part of. And for a couple months, as I was still at Union Gospel Mission, trying to work this out as COVID was coming on, I just had all of these different voices saying, Matt, like, go, like, you should do this. And I'm like, wife and I are just about to have our first baby. She's pregnant. There's a global pandemic. Uh, I know my history of struggles and what it's been like trying to find a job. Uh, quitting my job right now. Hmm. Doesn't really sound like the best plan. But uh, it became so forceful. And uh, the, the climactic moment was I'm in my car praying, just crying out to God, like, God, I, I don't know what to do. I have all these people, my wife included, telling me that I should go plant this church, but I love my job, and I don't want to give up that security right now, and I just don't know the best way to go. Please, please, God, I, I, I know you've been speaking to me, but I can't figure this out. And 10 minutes later, I sit down at a coffee shop, and I'm journaling about this, and a guy that I've never met before in my life walks up to me in the coffee shop, looks at me and says, hey, I know we don't know each other at all, and this is going to sound really weird, but the Holy Spirit just told me to come over and talk to you and tell you that now is the time of transition. I'm sitting there, and I'm like, you know, I do believe in coincidence. This seems pretty clear. And so um, I sat down with him, and we chatted for a while. We prayed together, and uh, the Lord just encouraged me to take this step. And so. We, uh, we got in partnership, my wife and I did, with some other people uh, and some funders. We got in partnership with another local church here in Spokane. I don't need to get into that or all of them, but as many of you have maybe experienced, um, you know, as followers of Jesus, the man whose life eventually took him to the cross, there's this stupid misnomer, once again, stupid within the church, that you, know, you follow Jesus, you do what he says, and it's just going to go great, right? <laughs> you know, ask all the apostles. It went great, right? Like when all but one of you were martyred and, you know, crucified like Jesus or killed, right? Like following Jesus, like it was a gravy train. No, obviously not. Um, and so we've, we tried to faithfully follow Jesus into this uh, between politics and that particular church writing a 95-page thesis on government rights and regulations of the church and losing part of their body. Um, it became a a political hotbed, uh, we tried to fight for unity. We tried to say like, hey, 
we have a difference of opinion maybe than you do on this issue about COVID. But what I think should unite us is we're trying to ask what's the most loving, faithful thing to do to, with Jesus in this situation? How do we be faithful to Jesus in the midst of COVID? What does it look like to love other people? And then I won't get off on this because I could preach on this forever, but I ask, the question shouldn't be, should I, shouldn't I, know, should I should not get vaccinated? It's what's the most loving thing to do for Jesus and my neighbors? If I think it's most loving to get vaccinated, I should. If I think it's most loving to not get vaccinated, then I shouldn't get vaccinated. Right? So that was our stance, and we should be able to be united as brothers and sisters in the midst of this. But they didn't, uh, they didn't see it that way. And so uh, we unexpectedly, abruptly lost our partnership with them. So we were again, all right, God, what's the, what's the next thing? Where do we go from here? Man, this has been a hard journey. And uh, so we just said, what's the next faithful step? And uh, we started meeting in our house, um, masking up at first and then not masking up and um, slowly meeting in our house, working through the first couple chapters of Matthew, uh, the people that were gathering together in our house from all walks of life, from all places, uh, started getting too big for our house. And through a relationship that um, we had been facilitating with River's Edge here, and me in particular with Matt Deason, um, there was an opportunity for us to move into this building uh, graciously that you all and, and Matt offered to us. And we started meeting as grafted uh, in this building. And we've now been a little over two years as grafted community church meeting together um, to try to live into the picture that God has given us of just that, that grafting, that there's this one true source of life in Jesus, and that all of these diverse branches bearing different unique fruits get to come together and be unified in that source of life and love, but still be unique and diverse in who God has made them to be. So that's a, a little bit of how my story and God's work in my life and grafted has come together at this point in time. I'm going to use this mic. I still meant like my mic was having issues. So um, it's really interesting the perspective that you talk about, just as far as like your upbringing and just being able to, not only your upbringing, but the stuff that went on during grade school and then elementary school and how that, or excuse me, middle school, and just how that shaped your perspective on um, what's often called like being, being able to zoom out. And I think so often, especially in the, you know, the context and the cultures and whatnot that we get ourselves embedded into, we get real comfortable. That becomes our perspective, right? And we kind of stay zoomed in the entire time. And we don't often um, uh, put ourselves in situations or whether that's um, whether we choose to put ourselves in those situations or for you didn't choose to, meaning uh, the situation with Starbucks, but even just with like elementary school, it's like you were kind of put in those situations where you kind of felt like the outcast and that allowed you to zoom out and it allowed you to kind of carry that perspective later on in life. So um, I, think there's, I think there's a lot there, a lot to consider. And as I'm thinking through like the questions that we just had, like the, the second one of, as far as the state of, uh, the church, I mean, and socioeconomic unity, you spoke to a lot of that stuff. And so even thinking through that, Gabe, I'll have you go to the, the last question for us, because I think you, you like brought us up to that point uh, and kind of teed it up, this last question here of what's one way that we can be part of the solution and to begin to cultivate a community of unity among classes, classes, cultures, all the different um, uh, background frames that we bring into relationships like you talked about. So I know we talked a little bit about this before uh, today, but it's like, man, whether it's um, in the church or politicians or whatever, it's easy to be like, oh, well, here's the problem. And you can kind of feel paralyzed by that. And so sometimes uh, what's needed and necessary is just like, hey, like, let's like bring ourselves into the pragmatic. Like, what's one thing that we can do uh, individually, collectively, as a church, uh, as a local church, uh, to begin to cultivate this community of socioeconomic unity in Jesus. So, what are your thoughts? Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll combine those two because an adequate solution is always contingent on a good understanding of the problem. You know, you got to understand the situation or the issue well. Um, so, 
uh, I just I get I'd start by saying this, and then I'll it'll I think provide a good segue into answering maybe a practical question. But that is, man, there's not one answer for that. I don't have the perfect perspective on it. Nobody does. Uh, I think we're all growing a bit in this way, and so I I do see some healthy growth within the church and the society. But I I want to start by this. We all, as you said, we all have cultural lenses. We all have preferences. We all have areas that we're comfortable in. We all have a background. None of us come to the scriptures or life objectively. We come through our experiential lenses. So starting off with just owning that. Nobody reads the scriptures objectively. Nobody reads culture, their relationships, their environments objectively. And one of those cultural lenses I think is really, really important, especially as it relates to this issue, is this isn't just an issue of socioeconomic unity, it's really an issue of cultural unity. It's really an issue of cultural divisiveness. And one of those is the church oftentimes for middle class or, say, uh, the more well-educated looks in some ways and feels in some ways more like a classroom. And so for those of us that have the financial privilege or the ability or access to education, we then come in and the church is shaped very much around sitting down, teaching, learning, an educationally formed meeting process. We need to be aware of that because most people that come from a lower socioeconomic class or struggle more with mental illness live in less of a literacy-based culture and in more of an oral culture. And the church has done a very poor job, I think, at responding to that, understanding that, or being willing to transform or tweak some of its practices to adjust to that. And I think along with that is just asking hey, how do I see the purpose and the function of the church? Is it about my personal self-growth development in Jesus and becoming the highest expression of myself in Jesus or my faith? Or is it about the community that Jesus is building? Is my mentality, I don't want to eat well if the person next to me is starving? Or is my mentality, I want to eat really well no matter what, and we'll go from there? Uh, And you have to be honest with yourself about where you're sitting in that. Um, Which brings to a a willingness to build culture around Jesus' values instead of our own, which means we have to think people over systems and structures. Systems and structures are helpful. They're good. We need them, but we fall in love with the comfort and the familiarity of systems and structures. And in any system or structure that becomes institutionalized or lasts for a period of time, slowly like a frog in a boiling pan, instead of it serving the people, the people serve the system and the structure. You just keep grabbing people to fill holes instead of doing what the church is meant to be, which is a family of gifted individuals that come together and you continue to tweak the system or the structures based on the people that you have. So we've got to see, I think, some of those things and be aware of them so that then we can get into, even though we're not safe uh, or we're not in a great place as a society, sorry, that's wrong, we're not a great place as a society or a church with this, um, one other thing, which is we worship safety. In America, we worship safety. We say, you shouldn't be in a situation where you don't feel safe. You should never be somewhere where you don't feel safe. And There's a great heart behind that, I think, because I think a lot of times it's don't continue to put yourself in an abusive situation, which you shouldn't. Like you shouldn't force yourself because Jesus loves somebody to let yourself be emotionally or physically abused. That's not Jesus' calling to turn the other cheek. That's about respect. That's about a lot of other things. It's not about allowing somebody to harm you over and over again. But because we've been so adamant about telling people they should feel safe, we've missed that we worship safety. To live like Jesus, you have to be willing to put yourself in risky, unsafe situations that require discomfort and courage. If you do not do that, you will not be able to love other people well. Because perfect love casts out fear. So we, we have to hold, not only that we have to do that, but we have to be honest enough to start from a place where we say, yeah, I do worship safety. 
yes, the safety of my family, the safety of myself, the safety of my community and the people that I care about is a higher value to me than the unity that Jesus died for in the gospel. And it is for most of us. And so got to reckon um, with those things so that we can move to this place of a practical step. You don't have to do it all. Nobody does. You don't have to do it like me. You don't have to do it like your neighbor. You and me are called by Jesus into the grace, the gospel, to start from where we are with our understanding of Jesus, with our experiences, and just ask, what is the next right step I can take? And I can't sit up here and say what that is for everybody, but I can give you an encouragement. So I'll give you this encouragement, and maybe it'll be a practical step for some of you, and and it is for me. And that is, it really does all start with the gospel. And it's actually really practical. And here's what I mean by this. What would happen if my inner world and your inner world were so shaped profoundly by being invited into every single day a family and a kingdom and a purpose that I don't deserve at all? What if you and I were so humbled consistently that God swang open the doors of his kingdom in the midst of how much a mess we will and do make of it to let us in. What if I just thought about that for a moment every day and let that sink in? What might even just that do for the way that I see and interact with other people? So if we're going to reach for the unity that Jesus wants for us, We need to be aware of the preferences and the cultural lenses that we bring in. We need to do battle, first and foremost, not with culture, with culture. The number one battle that you are called to wage war with is not with the brokenness of the world's culture or the political culture that's doing it wrong or your relative who's mean. The number one culture you are to battle with is your own. Because that's the one that Jesus has called you to take care of, first and foremost, your own heart. And I, and I will, I'm not trying to be long-winded, but I will give just a great example. I grew up loving John Wayne because my grandpa, Don, who was my closest relative and someone who really cared about me, loved John Wayne. And we'd work on the farm during the day, and then we'd watch John Wayne movies in the evening time, sitting on the couch together. It was a wonderful experience for me. So I'm already imbued, inside of me is already this natural affection and attachment and connection to John Wayne. But if you were to ask me, and this is that stepping outside, being able to think with what's called metacognition, for those of you that have access to that, think about the way you're thinking. If I just step outside and say, what does John Wayne look like through the lens of the gospel? It's horrible. It's awful. It's one guy who's not actually really all that moral even to begin with, taking a stand, wearing a white hat while everybody else is cowardly. It's one heroic person who's not Jesus, who doesn't look like Jesus, who doesn't represent Jesus, doing the good things on behalf of everybody else. It's incredibly sexist. It's incredibly racist. All the underlying themes of John Wayne are horrible. Now, it's easy to do that with stuff you don't like with stuff you have no attachment or affection for. It's harder to do that with stuff that you are bonded to or attached to or comes from your own background because you have to be willing to critically evaluate your own preferences and likes. But we cannot live into love unless we can hold preference and like like this. And so um, that connects me to, and then I'll stop talking, that practical step To do that and see myself more clearly requires that I saturate myself in the gospel because the only way to see myself more clearly is to see Jesus more clearly so I can see myself in light of who he is and what he's about. And so the start for socioeconomic unity within the church is the same as the start for unity within the church. It's the same for the church looking like Jesus. It's the same answer, and it really starts with 
sitting and saturating in the truth of the gospel because that will humble you and make you a grateful person who wants other people to experience that well. And when you start flowing with love inside of you for other people to have that too, you stop thinking as much and being worried as much about these other things. I know we always like to create, like I said, these systems and these step plans, but it's really not as much a system and a step plan as it is choosing to let your inner world be saturated with that. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for sharing, Matt. That was a lot, you know. And I even just think about if we just look at this prayer that Jesus has, and like how Matt shared last week, it follows that same framework. He, the 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 starting point of his prayer is the unity with the Father, and from that flows the unity of his disciples with one another, etc. It starts in, and that's the invitation that we have too: is being united with Jesus in the exact same way that he's united with the Father. And out of that springs this oneness and this unity uh, with our brothers and sisters. So uh, before we conclude and before Nick comes up, Ty, I'll invite, where's Ty? I'll, I'll invite you to come on up. And um, Ty, I'll have you just share um, just a couple thoughts about your time with Grafted. And then if you don't mind, just kind of bringing us to a, con- uh, a close in prayer. Um, we'll enter into worship after that. So. Um, yeah, I've been uh, fortunate enough to experience Grafted Church, and it's pretty amazing that like they take you know people from all walks of life. Um, I was actually at UGM, you know, in their homeless shelter. They're um, trying to get into the LRP program, and when I found uh, you know Grafted Church, Matt came and spoke there, and I just was really you know excited to hear his message, and I thought it was awesome that like you know people could come to his church, and like you didn't have to be a certain way or act a certain way. He was just really welcoming and there's been some times where I haven't been able to be there. And then every time I come back, they always welcome me and they're like family and I just feel like I belong there. It's really awesome. And I'm really fortunate and blessed to be there in Grafted Church. Dear Heavenly Father, please be with us today with our children and our families and just help us to go out into the world and see things through uh, good lenses and just allow our hearts to be open and receptive to the messages that you send to us through the people that you use to spread your message. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen.